Hey, I'm Pastor Colin from Aletheia Bible Fellowship. Thanks for checking out this sermon on resisting and discerning sexual temptation. If you find it useful, then go ahead and like and subscribe to this and share it to any friends that you think would find it useful too. Thanks. Alrighty, guys. So I'm not amplified in here, so I guess I'll have to just project. Um, let me know if you're having problems hearing. You can always move closer, I guess. Um, but the air conditioner is a double-edged sword. So, um, yeah, it's the last last week of our month on the lust of the senses in regard to sexuality and how we sort of address that and live with that. Um, this time, it's going to be talking about not so much um, individual groups of people like singles or marital couples, but um, things that really just apply to us as human beings, temptations that just apply to us regardless of what we're doing in our life at that particular time um, as sexually mature adults. It doesn't matter who you are or what your marital status is. uh, Sexual temptations, they abound more than ever. Accessibility is a huge factor for our sexual sin today, right? But acceptability is probably an even bigger factor. Uh, check out this email I received from Zoom Care. You know, um, it's like an urgent care place. But I received an email about a month ago from Zoom Care. It starts with quoting studies by the American Sexual Health Association. It says, one in five people in the U.S. have an STI. One in two people will have an STI at some point in their life. Over 20 million cases of STIs every year. STI stands for sexually transmitted infection, right? Most people would think, wow, like that's a lot. One in five people have it, have one currently according to that association. One in two people will have one at some point in their life. Over 20 million new cases every year. Um, Yeah, wow, that's a lot. But what do you think next? You know, how do you interpret that raw data? How do you... What does your discernment say about that? Next, they discern for us, thankfully, or not so much. They say STI stigma prevents people from getting tested and seeking care. We want to know that getting an STI isn't, we want you to know that getting an STI isn't the end of your sex life. It doesn't make you dirty, promiscuous, or bad. It just means you've caught an infection, one that should have the same stigma as the flu. Stigma, of course, is like a connotation, something that goes along with it, right? Like a a stigma is usually something bad, like a bad feeling that goes along with it, a culturally like shameful thing or whatever. It says in big bold letters, education equals best protection. Because STIs can lead to serious health problems when left untreated, it's important to educate yourself about how these infections spread. Protect yourself and your sexual partners by starting an open dialogue about STIs and establishing a routine for testing. First item on the agenda, like I said, is stigma. It's defined as a mark of disgrace associated with a particular circumstance, quality, or person. Trying to eliminate this in regard to sinful sexual activity is one of their goals. But there should be stigma in terms of that, right? That's what the Word of God does. It tells us there is a stigma behind sexual sin and the results of that. Taking care of yourself is valid, like they suggest, but it's a separate issue. And if you're typically a woman, 
and you go to the doctor, a lot of times they'll really push testing on you because you know they come to the table assuming that your relationship, even if it is monogamous, is not actually monogamous. And that's really sad and insulting, but it is a reality of the world today. But as believers, obviously we should hold ourselves to a higher standard than that. Um, an STI is very different than the flu because the most common ones, first of all, are exclusively, a lot of them are exclusively transmitted sexually and that behavior has real consequence to us and especially to God in terms of our relationship with him like we've discussed before. Just the name STI, sexually transmitted infection, is trying to destigmatize the issue. I don't know if y'all older folks remember, but they used to call them STDs, right? sexually transmitted disease, but that didn't sound good, and it sounded like it had a bad stigma to it, and that was literally what I was taught at Portland State University, is that we're changing this name largely because we don't want it to sound bad or dirty or whatever. We want to call it an infection, just like, you know, whatever maybe you got when you were on vacation to Mexico or, you know, Africa or something like that, or um, you got a cut on your hand, you know? But it is different. And as believers, we have to be discerning and not allow ourselves to be convinced that there isn't a difference. In our lives, we have to pay attention to how the world is trying to destigmatize sinful sex in all sorts of ways. And of course, this little email is concluded with an encouragement to protect yourself and your sexual partners with an S on the end of it through testing. In partners... They didn't even do us the courteousness of putting an S in parentheses, you know, at the end like they do on things when it's optional. They're like, oh, yeah, you definitely have multiple sex partners, so you should get tested. And your sex partner is probably going to have other sex partners, too. And this is the default. We should reject this as a default in all implications that it is a default and not let it slip past our radar as being discerning believers. And lastly, we're encouraged to establish a routine for testing to protect us you know, from our liberating lifestyle. None of these things necessarily encourage sexual sin directly, but they attempt to take away the reasons to reject it, some of the, some of the real um, physical consequences, and they spin facts to favor sin. They try to take away the shame of our public nakedness. They ignore tons of real medical and emotional issues. You know, For an example, of the most common STDs, or STIs, four of them are incurable of the eight most common. HPV, aka genital warts, HIV AIDS, herpes, and hepatitis B. Like those are all incurable. Um, where's the advice for these in the email, right? Like, just like politics, they tend to leave out some of the important details that don't support their worldview. <clears throat> there are consequences and permanent ones. Sinful sexuality is actively, purposefully being normalized. And so temptation has a much greater space to gain a foot to gain a foothold and to grow in our lives. This is pretty much in categories across the sexual board. You know, sexual activity and gender, types of acceptable relationships, pornography, etc. We always find new ways of sinning, right? Well it's good and productive to focus on um, the positive development of our sexuality like we've talked about in previous weeks. We also need to be acutely aware of temptation and all the sources that that comes from. Sexual temptations are domestic, you know, like local, close to us, internal threats, which can take many forms. 
but are 100% conquerable through Christ Jesus, who gives us strength. So where does that temptation really come from? You know, what does scripture say about that? The nature of temptation. It starts from inside you. That's what the scripture says. Yes, obviously outside forces provide opportunities for the temptation to take hold, but where does actual, actual temptation originate? Well, it comes from within us. Let's consult James. In James chapter 1, verse 12 through 15, James says, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And remember, when you're being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. God is never tempted by evil because he doesn't desire anything evil, but we are a different story. Adam and Eve right, had to, had to have a desire within themselves to even entertain Satan's temptation. If Satan had said you know, something else, it would have come to nothing. If Satan had said, hey Eve, if you eat the fruit, it's going to make you obese and you'll have nightmares forever. You know? She would have been like, uh, I'm good. Like, knock yourself out, Satan. Like, go to town on that fruit. She would have had no desire for that. But there was a desire in, here, in her. It would have almost been a joke otherwise. But no, Genesis 3.6 says the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. The wisdom and a measure of godhood were appealing to her. Sinful, but appealing. And that was before sin was even a thing, right? But something had taken root in her like that, and given she took an opportunity. And since then, we are set up with that growing in us already. Uh, temptation needs a little piece of fertile soil to grow in. Matthew 13 we see Jesus saying, Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds, and as he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun, and since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns and grew up and choked out the tender plants, and still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, even 100 times as much as, it been, as had been planted. Let's say we have a decent understanding of what's good versus sinful, you know, a decent foundation of discernment that we can stand back and look at things pretty accurately from God's perspective. We can see which seeds are from God and which seeds are not from God. <clears throat> Flip the script. Now Satan's trying to plant his seeds too. We want to move that good fertile soil from where Satan's trying to plant onto where God's seeds have already started to take hold in our lives and they're starting to grow and develop. You know, we want to make ourselves sensitive and fertile in those areas and leave just a hard patch of dirt for those seeds of temptation to fall on. Either that or if they get sprinkled in with the garden that's already going and in God's section of that, you know, community garden or whatever it is, then they get choked out by the big, like, developing plants 
right, that are there and the fruit that's going on, taking up all the nutrients, that even the weeds have a hard time flourishing in there. There's always going to be some weeds, and God's going to separate those at the end of time. We're mixing metaphors, but that's okay. <clears throat> but we want to provide fertile soil for the godly stuff and nice hard ground for Satan's seeds of temptation to have no ground to take hold in. So, let's take a look at a couple of those main seeds that Satan is using. Anything that causes division, first of all, of what God has put together is not from God and is not for God, right? Ever since our first sin pushed us to hide from God in the bushes, God's been working to reunite us with him and with one another. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Anything that divides you from God, your spouse, from your future spouse even, like we mentioned before, is a good basic filter for discerning sexual temptations. Like what things bring us together with the people that we're supposed to be fostering a relationship with, and what things push us further apart. So in that, we want to just think about a couple of the main categories of temptation that we face as adults, like pretty universally, adults and teenagers and stuff. Um, pornography, masturbation is an interesting one I want to highlight today. And then there's, there's all kinds of other ones, but even like just freedom and disassociation from our relationships and divorce, like there's temptations to, to push away from those relationships because it's easier as a coping mechanism. You know, but anyway, pornography is a pretty straightforward one, right? And there's lots of resources about that. But it wreaks havoc on current and future relationships. It's fueled by lust. It's um, pretty much terrible for all those involved and has consequences that spread all over the place. Um, goes through families. We want to stop those things uh, before they really take hold, before those seeds can grab onto fertile soil and really grow in our lives. <clears throat> it, we have to recognize, like we want to work toward recognizing the evil behind those things, right? So that when those seeds are attempted to be planted, as is always going to happen when you have access to the internet, it's like pretty crazy how you can't avoid something. Um, we have to be sensitive to those things. Be sensitive to the fact of the dehumanizing aspects of pornography, how a person becomes an object for another one's pleasure or whatever completely fake life scenario is going on in that media. You know, just understanding that these things aren't real life and they destroy real life because of the narrative it puts forward how it rejects value in the image of God in each of those people. In the, in the story or whatever, and the, the images themselves, but also in the lives of the people, right? And thinking about how these things reach out and affect those people and their families and their future families, the spouse that God intends for that person. Like, that's a difficult pill to swallow, you know? And that's a really sad life narrative for that person. Like... We need to till our gardens in a way that makes fertile the areas where we are sprinkling, you know, that we have that, like, godly garden going on 
and leave a nice, good, hard, packed ground. Maybe pour like four inches of concrete over those other places so that there ain't no seeds that can take hold in that region. Um, thinking about how it disregards the nature, you know, of sexuality, as we talked about, as being designed to bond to people. Like, there's nothing like that going on in those narratives. And it's not just straight-up video, right? It's, it's all kinds of um, improperly displayed sexual narratives, even in things that make it to our children. Like, the TV ratings are shallow at best. They don't rate the philosophy and the meaning of the content, right? They can easily slip things into a PG or a PG-13 movie, even G movies, that promote a worldview that leads toward accepting sexual sin and improper relationships and improper bonding and making fertile soil in those areas where we do not want anything to grow. We want to be able to... Yeah, overwhelm our gardens with godly foliage and fruit and not have room for that sin to develop. But what about the more, um, you know, I want to I think about those temptations that are not so overt. You know, maybe you're in a, a sensitive place and you have to think about other types of things that are approximations of porn. You know, say uh, art. The reality is that a lot of art has nudity in it and things like that. Are you in avoiding, like, making sure to avoid pornography and those kinds of things, are you allowing a little bit of fertile soil to be sprinkled on those seeds or putting those seeds on a little ground that's not concrete covered yet because you're allowing an opening um, from under the guise of appreciating an artwork or watching a movie that has some nude scenes in it when maybe it's not wise for you to do that, right? And thinking about how we're allowing and um, in our children and stuff as, they're, as we're teaching them how to tend their own garden and to keep soil fertile in those godly areas. <clears throat> how are we supposed to do that properly um, if we're not exercising discernment in these gray areas too? And at least giving people a way to process that and making sure that it's being taken correctly and that a, a way in is not being left for temptation. Um, we are born naked, you know, and even intended on being that way. But sin has really warped our view and use of the body. So if you're in a place where your spirit wants to indulge in sin, then avoid nudity in whatever aspect that cues up those sinful tendencies in your heart. If sin is trying to creep up on you, Paul says run from sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Like, get away from it. And appreciate, you know, like learn how to appreciate art from the, the design of God. From fully understanding what it means, what art means, and the philosophy behind that and what these things are trying to portray, you know, creating fertile soil for those positive things and not allowing yourself to view it from an indulgence standpoint of getting a little, you know, a little taste test of something in there. 
The second major thing that I really want to address and I feel called to address is a, a common question, I think, in sexual purity discussions, and that is masturbation. There's lots of resources on masturbation, and people take two sides. Some people think that it's not okay at all. Some people think that it is okay. There's secular research that says there's like benefits to masturbation. It's a, it's a convoluted subject, you know? But it is a sexual temptation, nonetheless, no matter which side you take on that. Specifically, technically, in Scripture, it doesn't really speak to it, you know? And if there is no law against it, like, we have freedom in Christ to be responsible with those things. Oh, yeah, also, it's, it's like, a universal, universally um, able to do. Like, even kids are, like, dabble in, in self stimulation and stuff like that. It's not what you would call masturbation, but it's relevant, you know, and so it's something that we all deal with at some point in our lives. The closest thing that scripture really speaks to it about that people cite is Genesis 38, um, when God judges Onan, and he was supposed to marry and produce an heir for his brother who had died according to the law and the culture. Um, so he married his deceased brother's wife and had sex with her, but instead of impregnating her like he was supposed to, he spilled his semen on the ground instead of doing his duty by the law and by his culture and by his family and by his deceased brother. And God found that to be evil and killed him even. The issue was pretty obviously the violation against the law and his brother in regard to giving him an heir for the family. So it doesn't really apply in this discussion, although people have found a lot of creative ways to try to make it apply. In my evaluation, it doesn't. I encourage you to evaluate it for yourself. <clears throat> Most other anti-masturbation authors cite a plethora of verses which the practice of masturbation generally violates, you know, in terms of the, um, what did I say here? Most other anti-masturbation authors cite a plethora of Bible verses yeah, which talk about principles um, that the practice of masturbation usually violates. So for it not to be sinful, masturbation can't violate other principles in Scripture. It's pretty straightforward. There's lots of principles in Scripture. To name a few, you know, Jesus' universal commands, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Produce the fruit of the Spirit. Don't produce demonic wisdom. You know, from James 3.14, talks about jealousy and selfishness and boasting and lying. Um, always caring and trying to grow others, and that being where your focus is, you know, that can be something that can be violated. A last really interesting example, and I think is a good one for us to really meditate on if we're considering that issue and how to mentor in it or deal with it ourselves, uh, a final command from Paul to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 8. He says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what's true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. That's, a, that's an interesting one to, to gauge how we engage in our sexuality, right? Um, 
because a, not everybody, but a lot of people that are against masturbation do have the, like a connotation that sexuality in general is something that's very, very conservative and borderline, like the, the impression that you get is that by nature it is dirty or shameful and anything besides the super narrow band is absolutely unacceptable, 100%. And as we've talked about, that's not really true. Like God created us as sexual beings and we were created naked and so on and so forth. Like there's, there's a lot of different elements to that, but it's not by nature bad. We've made it bad like everything else, uh, but it's not bad. Um, but we do have to look what's behind the behavior of masturbation to figure out where we are going to actually fall on that issue of that individual evaluation of that. So it's not impossible to have non-sinful masturbation, to have it that is right before God, but it's uncommon to be sure. People self-stimulate for a lot of reasons. You know, it can be coping mechanism for anything from loneliness to stress from school or work, but there are also extenuating circumstances, long-distance relationships, for example, and you have like the new era of technology that can consider video chatting or phones or things like that where you can connect with a spouse that is not there. Like, perhaps that's the scenario that you have. That's a difficult one. Like, is that wrong to engage in that in that scenario? <clears throat> so if you're going to consider going there, meaning masturbation, and advising about that and so on and so forth, consider guilt only where it should appropriately go, not on the action itself, but what's behind it. A lot of the a lot of practice of that is sinful because going back to the previous point, of using porn for arousal, right? Clearly, that's not okay. That's super straightforward. Thinking of people other than your spouse isn't okay. That's textbook adultery from Christ. Even thinking of activities that your spouse is not okay with, I would propose, um, that causes division too, back to that standard that we were talking about. Because at that point, you're not actually thinking of your spouse as the person that they are, right? You're thinking of, a different person that has a different mind and you're working to grow away from that person it's not helping you connect in your sexuality with that person but it's driving you apart so being discerning about what's going on with that like what types of thought processes do you have going on with that or fantasies I guess is probably what it would be called in that scenario right uh, with singles um, which stereotypically I feel like is the scenario for that, but it's really not. Like I hear guys at work all the time talk about that as married men, you know? It's 100% it's a thing um, across the board. And in our culture, for women even, um, it's growing and growing and growing. I just watched to test our new projector um, some scenes from, what's that movie with Joan Jett and the, uh, anyway, one, it's like a rock and roll movie about like, runaways. yeah, Runaways, Runaways, thanks Adam. And there's a whole scene about one girl teaching the other one uh, to masturbate. Like, it's becoming more and more of a thing and an acceptable thing and even a recommended thing in our culture. 
But again, it can easily be sinful through all kinds of lust. You know, it's tricky being single because you don't necessarily have a target person. You don't have a target person to be able to um, think about. Um, we're relational beings, so staying focused on something positive, something honorable and true and good and godly and righteous and all those things, that's really difficult if you don't have a, a target necessarily. Um, whereas in a married relationship, like you could, in theory, think about your spouse and being able to grow closer in a sense in different scenarios with that right but as single you have a bigger struggle to keep that righteous before god and moving toward a positive direction um maybe potentially you could consider fantasizing about the person that god will have for you right and what that godly relationship would look like not just the lust and the sexuality of it or whatever but but if you're going to attempt to make that work, and obviously this is going to be a matter of conscience for each believer, um, but making a real effort um, and being convinced that you're moving in a positive direction and being able to even see fruit from that. So this is part of our nature, you know? It's part of our nature to have to struggle against these things. So... Like anything, you should also make sure to consult a trusted mentor if you're struggling with that. You're not alone in it, and getting help is good. And you shouldn't feel in any way that if sexuality is like a problem in certain ways that you can't go to other people. We are supposed to be family. We're supposed to be united in heart and mind before God. And we're supposed to share each other's burdens and support each other in this. And so we need to be open and aware that this is a major factor in people's lives and be able to support each other in being godly people in the body of Christ. Um, another thing that seems really obvious to me, but obviously the scenario of masturbation where it's becoming excessive and having dysfunction come from it, that's not going to be okay. That's going to violate a lot of principles. And note, it is something that is addicting because it releases dopamine and you have your own control over it. And so it can turn into a cycle and does turn into a cycle for many people um, where it's, it's an addiction and we're not supposed to be addicted to anything, right? In any case, regardless of the scenario, we have to be cautious if you're going to consider this, um, let's call it a coping mechanism or whatever. But masturbation can condition us to respond sexually to non-real-life stimulus in general. doesn't matter if you are single, single and want to get married or if you're married or potentially if you're, I don't know. Yeah, any, I think that pretty much covers all the scenarios of that. But what you don't want to do is rob yourself of the ability to make a good connection with your spouse or your future spouse, right? You don't want to make that process more difficult of coming together sexually and bonding on that because it is something that happens. If you condition yourself, if you teach your body to only respond to yourself or only respond to 
whatever you know fantasy situation you have going on, then that's going to be really difficult when you try to adapt your body into that. And especially if there's insecurities in that, which there probably are because people are insecure about our sexuality, right? So in that scenario, say you even get married to a healthy um, another believer or whatever, and you bring with it into the relationship these difficulties, you can have problems. And many people can or have had problems in that in the body of Christ. <clears throat> Just go on any sort of discussion board about that, even among believers, and you can find all sorts of people having problems with some of those exact things. I don't necessarily recommend that, you know, especially if you're trying to avoid sexual temptation and ideas and stuff. But if you're struggling with these things and you want answers and you want to see that there's real threats out there, there's plenty of threats to be able to perceive in other people's experience. Don't make yourself experience it needlessly. In general, um, we got to take care of our future relationship like that or our current relationship. Those difficulties are not what God wants for you. So if you can simplify that and avoid those things, then do it. Just like Paul recommends, it's simpler and better to serve God if you just stay single. If you can't stay single and you are burning with lust, then get married. Then find a godly outlet for that, for that solution, right? I'm not going to tell you authoritatively that masturbation is a good godly outlet for the solution of loneliness or whatever. But it's a real thing, and as a real thing, we should address it, and we should be able to have a conversation about it amongst believers who are trying to cope in a godly way with their sexuality. So let's be aware of it and not just try to shove it under the rug. In any case, we need to guard against indulging in sexual activities that don't produce good godly fruit. And instead, identify and focus, um, at the very least, on temptations, if not outright, just reject them altogether, you know, at possible sources of temptations. So, we need to be actively resisting temptation in whatever form it comes, and trust God to grow us in that process. John chapter 8, verse 10 says, Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Left out the context for that. That's, that's the end of sort of the scene of the adulterous woman where everybody is um, brings her into public and they're condemning her and they're about to stone her. For adultery, she was caught in it. <clears throat> but Jesus responded, you know, after he said, hey, whoever hasn't sinned, go ahead and throw the first stone. Right? Um, but after they left, Jesus stands up and says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So we see that Jesus forgives and simply says, go and sin no more. First of all, I want to point out that she calls him Lord, like she recognizes his authority as who he claims to be. 
That's a major component. Secondly, Jesus recognizes her capability to reject temptation and sin in that process. That was a major sexual sin that she was conducting, one that by law condoned her death. Right? But Jesus says, I'm not going to condemn you. Go and sin no more. When he says go and sin no more, what's that mean? It means that they have a that she has a real legitimate, you may even call it a supernatural ability to overcome her nature in Christ and make significant headway and possibly even master her vice and her sin. Sinful thoughts are a, a trickier customer. You know, they're hard, harder to grab hold of. How do we use renewing of the mind to win that battle and make significant headway and possibly even master that vice? You know, controlling those ideas or fantasies or thought processes or lack of discernment. How do we do that with sinful thoughts and combating them? In Ephesians 6, we're told to put on the full armor of God, right? In verse 10, Paul says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and his vast strength. Put on the armor, the full armor of God, so you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist the devil in this evil day, and having prepared everything to take your stand. Because it's first a spiritual battle. right? This is a truth that we recognize about our fight in this world in general. It's first a spiritual battle. It's waged in the spirit and the heart and the mind. It's the armor of God. It's not physical armor. But these are not separate in nature from the physical, the spirit and heart and mind. When Jesus says in Matthew 5.27, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or verse 21 and 22 of that same chapter 5 in Matthew, you've heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. What's the common thread there? He's saying that thoughts and emotions are more like actions than you think, are more like accountable actions than you really think. And you're held accountable to entertaining them, just like actions. It's one thing to sin and repent and confess and fix it, right? But it's another to allow sin to persist. Thoughts are the same way. We should treat them more like our actions. There's actually, it's a terrible philosophy of psychology, but in the psychology of behaviorism, where you basically treat everything like an animal, like reward and punishment to learn things, Um, that system treats thoughts as behaviors, and it's really successful in helping people modify their thought patterns because it views it as another action. We should do the same thing and understand, not from Skinner, B.F. Skinner, who is completely against God in all ways, shapes, and forms, but from Christ, that our thoughts are more like behaviors than we think. They are a type of behavior. 
and think of them as that, something we can control just like we can control not going and sleeping around with people. Thoughts are that same way. Um, We can train them successfully, like working out physically, right? In working out, you push your muscles to the point of tiredness where they're just about to give out, and this is where, like, the best growth happens when you exercise them and practice that. People who understand love, people who understand, like, working out, um, they love this feeling. Why is that? Even I love that feeling. I don't like working out. They understand how the body works. They take joy in the process and interpret that pain as gain. The mind works in the same way if we understand it the same way. And God never gives so much that the muscle will be destroyed. The muscle of our mind, though. We won't break because God will never give us too much. We can take joy in that and we can work it out intentfully. It's just something that that takes practice, that takes flexing. So we should flex it. We should resist thought behaviors of temptation and build new thought behavior focused on what's good. Just like that Philippians 4 verse says, resisting thought behaviors of temptation. Just like working out, consistency gets results. We should also, just like working out, take into account our nutrition as we're resisting temptation and guarding against it and building up that godly thing instead, that godly thought process and discernment. Um, In nutrition, you know, we want to intake proteins and the building blocks of our muscles. We want to do that same thing with spiritual muscle. So we can't grow muscle when we starve ourselves, right? When the body is in, like, famine conditions. You just can't do it. In fact, your muscle, like, eats itself. So we have to continually feed ourselves with scripture, with the word of God, with healthy input from other believers and our mentors and so on and so forth as we're trying to change our thought patterns and be able to be open about our thought patterns so that we can get them out into the open as the behaviors that they are and flex them and have control over that. It's much harder if they stay inside your head in this little safe zone where nobody but God knows that they're there. So we should get those out and flex those. This process in sexuality and in the analogy of working out takes years. And the need to keep working that will never fully go away. But that's okay because we have hope in Christ in the next life where we will be complete and we won't have sin and struggle in that way. And we will be with Christ in our relationship that's meant to be forever. But often sexual temptation targets are weak points. A person doesn't simply cheat because they want sex or they fall into an addiction to masturbation because it feels good. Those aren't the simple reasons. It'd be nice if that was that simple, but it's not. It's because usually they're missing something else, right? From their marriage to God and it's outworking in their life or from the current relationship or from a past trauma that's led to particular insecurities They're not general, ethereal, like vague issues, right? You can identify and you can address those things that are creating those weak points that make you want to cope in those unhealthy ways to get that dopamine release from um, whatever 
sinful thing you've learned and allowed to grow. We've got to fill those holes appropriately and, like I said earlier, move that, export that soil where those bad things are growing and put that soil, your willingness to grow, the fertileness of that land onto the place where the real garden is growing and leave those other things to die in the hard, compacted soil and ask God to dig those suckers out. We have to fill those holes appropriately, first allowing God to fill them and following with our own healthy development and progress and assertiveness in that area. We do need positive things to replace negative things. Renewing your mind, for example, in you know, Romans 12, it entails remaking, replacing with new and godly processes. It's not just saying, oh, this temptation is bad. I want to stop being, t- I want to get rid of that temptation. It doesn't work that way. It's just like, you know, if you're trying to quit smoking, it really helps to like chew gum instead or whatever in your, in your transition process. It's just how we work. We're not meant to have an empty void in ourselves, so trying to just remove something doesn't work because we always want to fill it with something else. That's why God says keep diving into the Word every day. Be taught about it. Teach other people about it. That's how our individual bodies and the body overall stays healthy and growing and being renewed each day. We have to replace and remake with godly processes. So in this, you know, we're, we need to pursue marriage to a spouse or marriage to God in our sexuality, you know, our conception of sexuality. Instead of allowing a void to be there and to try to take it up with these other things that are tempting and satisfying for the moment, but destructive in the long term and sinful in God's eyes first and even to the believer. <clears throat> If we don't do either of those things, pursuing a marriage to a spouse or marriage to God, then holding out without sexual immorality is very difficult. It's very unlikely, especially over the long term. So pursue your gifting and God's calling to serve in, that, in those particular ways. You know, when we replace sin with godly positive pursuits, it, it just works. It works. It's been said that relapse actually begins from addiction when the positive things stop happening. You know, if you get off drugs and you're volunteering and stuff and you um, maybe have a good relationship starting or something like that, but if those people break up with their that relationship or stop um, volunteering or stop going to their Bible study, whatever things that's going on, that's when the relapse actually begins from that viewpoint because you've stopped making an effort to grow that garden of godly things, not making room for, not leaving room for the sin. But as soon as you stop tending that garden, there's room for other weeds and things to take hold, things that are not from God but from Satan. Or in another way, when you've removed your breastplate of righteousness, in spiritual battle, you leave your chest wide open for a mortal blow that can really knock you off your horse. And that's what it is. So I want to conclude with another passage about being transformed, because at the end of the day, 
That's what we want to fall on. We want to fall on the hope in Christ and understand that we can have control over these temptations, not by our strength, but through his strength. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Sort of a parallel with Romans 12. With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life that God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. There are many kinds. But that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let your spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes, put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. We do. We need to tell the truth to ourselves and to those around us. Because everybody knows that the first thing about temptation is you start lying to yourself. Making justifications that something is okay when it's not. When you haven't done your diligence in discerning what's going on in terms of where that temptation is coming from. What that particular temptation is and what's behind it. What the fruit of it is actually producing if it aligns with all those principles in the scriptures. And really counting the cost of what it will take to eradicate it, of resisting that temptation. But we need to do all those things. We need to do all those things. And we have help. We can do it through Christ and through the rest of his body. And leave no room for lies or temptation. <clears throat> so, let's ask some questions and split to our cell groups. Um, First of all, my, every cell group is in the same place, except for the sanctuary cell group is going to be down in the commons once again. So, how have you seen the world trying to destigmatize sinful sex? How have you seen the world trying to destigmatize sinful sex? And where, do you, where have you fallen on that? You know, have you been paying attention to that? Are you feeding your thoughts and emotions properly? Are you feeding your thoughts and emotions properly um, so that you're growing in the right direction, not leaving room for sinful things to grow and you know, providing enough nourishment for the godly things to grow? And then third, how have you discussed sexual temptation with mentors? Have you ever done that or explored that or thought about that or even considered that as a possibility. And if you have done that, you know, what does that look like? What kind of advice can you offer for people that are um, understandably like kind of freaked out by that? And lastly, how strong are your defenses against sexual temptation? How can you beef those up? Alrighty, let's split and go discuss. And thank you for everybody setting up this room and with the air conditioner and all of that. Appreciate it.